Creative Power, Volume 2, Chapter 6, The Laws of Invention. Having accumulated a sufficient store of idea, image, and materials selected according to the principle of probable value in your work of constructive imagination, with the intent of achieving your definite purpose and definite ideal, and having classified these materials according to logical order or special relations of use, etc., you are now ready to proceed to the task of combining, adjusting, adapting, and creating these materials into new images, ideas, or concepts according to new plans of association, correlation, or coordination. You should never lose sight of the fact that all work of constructive imagination consists of joining together things already known, but in new combinations and orders of arrangement, correlation, or coordination. All great inventions are the result of evolution and recombination. We may trace the history of the evolution of the electric telegraph, the telephone, the electric light, the steam engine, the automobile, etc., through the many stages. Someone invented some simple recombination but was unable to complete the task. Another added some new recombination. Still another discovered an improvement and so on until at the last, some inventor by a bold stroke of constructive imagination effected a more complete recombination, adding some new and important combinations, and the invention was perfected. No, not perfected fully, for in after many years, other improvements were added, and the single thing grew into greater perfection. In the Field Museum in Chicago at one time, were exhibited a series of models showing the evolutionary history of the locomotive. From the simplest and crudest beginning, the invention was traced along the course of its history, each decided improvement being shown. It was almost impossible at first to realize that the crude contrivances, the clumsy machines representing the first attempts, were the actual ancestors of the latest and most improved types of the modern locomotive, but such was the fact. In this connection, it is interesting to note that some of these earlier types were as truly the ancestors of the automobile as of the locomotive. The rapid progress in the late stages of the evolution of the modern automobile from the crude horseless carriage of a quarter century further back is a matter of personal knowledge to the middle-aged man of today. Of course, this was written in 1922, remember. But the automobile, had a much earlier history, as you may see by reading the article upon automobiles in any good encyclopedia. It may surprise you to learn that as far back as 1802, a steam road carriage was driven from Cambridge to London, England, a distance of over 90 miles. It is said that the inflated rubber tire of the bicycle was an important factor in the rapid development of the modern automobile and that the improvements in the gasoline engines made possible by the development of the automobile solved the great difficulty in the case of flying machines and thus made possible the modern aeroplane. Here you have typical examples of the recombination principle in constructive imagination. The history of the evolution of the telephone is also worth study in this conception. Look it up in some standard encyclopedia. Reboat says, concerning this fact of the evolution of inventions, 
mechanical and industrial imagination, like aesthetic imagination, has its preparatory period, its zenith and decline, the periods of the precursors of the great inventors and of mere perfectors. At first, a venture is made, effort is wasted with small result. The man has come too early or he lacks clear vision. Then a great imaginative mind arises, blossoms. After him, the work passes into the hands of pupils, imitators or perfectors who add, abridge, modify, such is the order. The history of the application of steam as a power for operating machinery is a long one. Its beginnings are found in the elipile of Hero of Alexandria. Its critical and thrilling period is found in the work of Newcomen and Watt. Its period of fruit bearing lies in the present. The history of timekeeping or time measuring instruments furnishes us with another example of the evolutionary progress of invention. First came the simple clepsydra or water clock in which time was measured by the flow of water. Then came a water gauge causing a hand to move around a dial, the two hands indicating hours and minutes respectively. Then came the improvement, i.e. the addition of weights by means of which the clepsydra became a true clock. This improved clock was at first cumbersome and massive, but gradually became smaller and lighter. Then Tycho Brahe contrived a clock form capable of measuring seconds of time. Then came another great improvement, i.e. Huygens invention of the spiral spring replacing the weights. The clock gradually evolved into the crude, large and cumbersome watch. The watch in turn by gradual steps evolved into the thin, small and marvelously accurate modern watch. Man observed the efficient natural instruments and implements of the lower animals and began to improve upon them. He employed the models of the sharp cutting teeth of the rodents as the designs for his evolution of the ax, the chisel and the saw. From the woodpeckers, he borrowed the idea which he gradually worked out in the form of the auger, the gremlin, the wimble. From the tigers and other carnivorous animals, he took his model for his crude knives and other cutting implements. From the beaver, he learned how to make and use the trowel. From the claws of the digging animals, he evolved the idea of the hoe and the rake. From the fish's fin, he secured the rudimentary idea of the oar. From the wing of the bird, he acquired his first idea of the sail. From the spinning insects, he learned the nature and use of the spindle and distaff. From these humble beginnings arose the marvelous array of the highly efficient implements, tools, and machinery employed by civilized man today. More than this, from his original weapons of offense and defense, the battle axes and clubs, he evolved his tools of work such as the hatchet, the tree cutting axe, the hammer, the lifting power of the battle axe or war club empirically discovered gave him the first idea of the principle of the lever. The use of the rude sail developed the idea of the windmill. The rolling log in the water suggested the water wheel to him. The water wheel first employed to grind grain afterwards was used to saw wood, lift heavy materials, move great hammers. From these rude applications of natural power, it gradually developed the higher and more complex forms now in common use. The use of the horse and the ox to pull trees and logs itself an adaptation gradually evolved into the use of these animals to pull chariots and wagons. These in turn were the beginnings of the motor vehicles of today. Rebote says, 
Every invention, great and small, before becoming a fixed and realized thing, was first an imagined idea, a mere contrivance of the brain, an assembly of the new combinations or new relations. In inventions, man has imagined to a great extent. By the very law of the complexity of inventions, all inventions are found to be grafted upon one another. In all the useful arts, improvements have been so slow and so gradually wrought that each one of them passed unperceived without leaving its author the credit for its discovery. The immense majority of inventions are anonymous. Some great names alone survive, but whether individual or collective, imagination remains imagination. In order that the plow, at first a single piece of wood hardened by the fire and pushed along by human hand, should become what it is today. Through a long series of modifications described in special works, who knows how many imaginations have labored. In the same way, the uncertain flame of a resinous branch, guided vaguely in the night, leads us through a long series of inventions to gas and electric lighting. All objects, even the most ordinary and now common that now serve in our ordinary everyday life are condensed imagination. One is impressed by the striking analogy between the processes of invention as just described and the process of grafting in horticulture. Horticultural grafting is defined as the process of taking a shoot or scion cut from one tree or shrub and inserting it in a vigorous stock of its own or a closely allied species so as to cause them to unite and thus to cause the graft to derive a larger supply of nutritive power that it could otherwise obtain. By reference to the history of any invention, we have given actual illustrations of several. You will see that the new idea image always is grafted upon the stock of some older idea image. The new contrivance is the graft of a new contrivance upon an earlier contrivance, either of nature or of man. Nature also is seen to proceed in the same way in her processes of creative evolution. Bergson tells that creation and evolution are but two names for the same universal creative process. All creation is evolution and all evolution is creation. He says, a great creative process is in progress, sweeping everything along in its course. The actual present is all existence gathered up in this creative process. The past is also gathered up into it, exists in it, is carried along in it, as it presses forward toward the future. It is an unceasing becoming which preserves the past and creates the future. It is a creative evolution, a process in which past, present, and future are involved. Psychologists and philosophers alike are in agreement concerning the fundamental fact that even the highest forms of constructive imagination are dependent upon the raw materials of rep reproduced sense experiences and that constructive imagination can build only with these materials for it has no others with which to build. But this fact has been overemphasized in some cases to even such an extent that the term creative has been tacitly denied to even the highest activities of the constructive imagination. This particular view is too often presented as the whole truth the other half of which must be supplied in order to perfect the whole. We ask you to consider the following statements in expressing and illustrating the opposing viewpoints, for we wish you to perceive the truth in both of its aspects, 
and thus see the thing as it is. Thought from the first of these two respective viewpoints furnishes the report that even the most efficient constructive imagination is tied to the stake of perception by a cord of greater or less strength. In this view, the imagination is held to be entirely dependent for its working materials upon the perceptions arising from sense experience. Those holding to this view argue that because of this fact, the imagination is not truly a creative power. That inasmuch as it does not create its own materials and must draw its materials from outside of its own realm, it does not truly create, but merely puts together in more or less new combination the materials which it obtains from its without. Say these reasoners, the imagination, is entirely dependent upon outside materials for its constructive work. It is limited to the materials obtained through the experience of its owner or those of others. These thinkers point out that the imagination is like a builder who uses the material of a disorderly pile of bricks in order to build a fine home. Or like the watchmaker who puts together the numerous parts of the intricate timekeeper, or like the artisan who employing masses of metal makes an engine, a sewing machine, a bicycle. Carrying this idea to its logical conclusion, we may say, as one writer points out, Thus, a painting is a mere combination of forms and colors, an oratorio of sounds, an epic poem of words or ideas previously existing in the mind. The elements of a poem, like Paradise Lost, its streams, flowers, angels, and deities, were all in mind of the poet before he began to write, and all that imagination did was to combine them into one harmonious whole. <clears throat> in short, in this view, imagination is merely the power of combination. It does not include the true creative element. Its materials are previously existent. Thought from the second viewpoint furnishes a somewhat different report. Its argument being more or less of a nature of what in legal procedure is known as demurrer. A demurrer in plain language asks the question, well, even admitting that what you say is so, what of it? The demurrer asks judgment on this point, whether the matter alleged by the opposite party, even assuming it to be true, is sufficient in law to sustain the action or the defense as the case may be. Say this set of reasoners, we admit that the imagination does not create something out of nothing and that its creative work is performed by combining, arranging, adapting, or weaving the raw materials furnished by perception apperception and experience. But is this not true of all other kinds of creative work of which the human mind has any knowledge? Does the human mind know of anything having been made from nothing? Can it form a conception of any such happening? Is not the term creative a statement of the act of putting together, combining, manufacturing, making, composing, constituting something from other things? If this be so, and it is beyond question true, then the opposing side is merely quibbling over the meaning of a word and not dealing with facts. These thinkers say further, the opposite side is told but a half truth, not the whole truth. That which is withheld is as important as that which has been stated. Every work of art, every process of reasoning, every product of hand, brain, reason, imagination, or their combinations, 
is a composition, a joining, a fusing, a welding, a putting together. Sounds are combined in music. Words are combined in a poem. Colors are combined in a painting. But do sounds, words, and colors alone make these productions works of art? Shakespeare's immortal works are, in this view, but aggregations of letters of the alphabet. But did Shakespeare play no part in the creation? Was he not a creator of his works? The omitted portion of this truth is this. It is not alone the materials employed in the construction, but also the manner in which these materials are combined, arranged, and put together that constitutes the creation. As a writer has said, this power of ideal conception, which uses these dead elements to express its living ideals, is the work of the constructive imagination. Brooks gives us the essence of spirit of this second viewpoint in the following able statement made many years ago. Imagination can combine objects of sense into new forms, but it can do more than this. The objects of sense in most cases are merely the materials with which imagination works. Imagination is a plastic power molding the things of sense into new forms to express its ideals. And it is these ideas that constitute the real products of imagination. The objects of the material world are to it like clay in the hands of the potter. It shapes them into forms according to its own ideals of grace and beauty. He who sees no more than a mere combination in the great creations of the imagination misses the essential element and elevates into significance that which is merely incidental. You will readily see that here, as in many other cases, the truth of the matter is found only in the reconciliation of the two opposing sides. Each side voices a half-truth. The whole truth is found by uniting the two halves. It is true that the imagination must do its work by employing the materials of perception, apperception, and experience. But there is the marvelous combining power required to put together these elements, factors, and parts of the material so furnished. A child has the necessary 26 letters plainly marked on its alphabet building blocks, but it might try for eternity to compose a paradise lost, one of Shakespeare's plays a synthetic philosophy or Emerson's essay or a work on the higher mathematics by means of an accidental putting together of these letters. It needs that something else to accomplish the task. And that something else is the discriminating, selecting, combining faculties and power of the efficient constructive imagination. Finally, there is another element usually involved in the higher products of the constructive imagination. In the processes of the constructive imagination, just as in many of nature's subtle processes, the work of creation is accomplished, not by mere, more or less purposive setting in place of separate bits of material, as for example, in the building of a toy house with the materials of building blocks or of a card house with the pack of playing cards. There is often rather a fusing of material and its subsequent hardening as for instance, in the fusing of copper, tin, and zinc into the new metal called bronze, or the crystallization of the particles of water into ice. Water is created from particles of oxygen and hydrogen, but these two elements become fused by chemical action and really form a new substance, not merely a put together mixture. Thus, 
things may be put together in such a subtle way as to constitute a new thing differing from either of its constituents. A thing is often more than the mere sum of its parts. To this sum must be added the new element of mutual relation or working relation. This new element figures largely in the creative process of constructive imagination. Thus, King Malanda's chariot in the ancient Buddhist story consisted not alone of its several parts, but also of the arrangement, mutual relations, and working unity of those parts. These last mentioned elements being supplied by the constructive imagination of the designer of the chariot. Again, the color green is composed of yellow and blue. Yet green is a true color, differing from either of its compositive parts or from both of them when not united. Rebo says, all creation, whatever great and small, shows an organic character. It implies a unifying synthetic principle. Colazzo says, we know nothing of a complex psychic production that remains simply the sum of its component elements, each preserving its own character with no modifications. The nature of the components disappear in order to give birth to a novel phenomenon that has its own and particular features. The construction of the imaginative ideal is not a mere grouping of past experiences. In its totality, it has its own individual characteristics among which we no more see the compelling lines than we see the components oxygen and hydrogen in water. Wundt says, in no scientific or artistic production does the whole appear as made up of its parts like a mosaic. Mill says that imaginative creations are cases of mental chemistry. The facts bear him out in the statement. Neither should it be forgotten that a very high order of mental activity is manifested in every process of true constructive imagination. The mental powers of comparison, discrimination, deliberation, judgment, and selection are involved in the higher processes of constructive imagination. The imaging powers produce and exhibit a great number of images, each of which is a candidate for the office which constructive imagination is striving to fill properly and adequately. Here we have another instance of the struggle for existence and the survival of the fittest. Here, many are called, but few are chosen. Image after image is produced, examined, tested, and then either rejected or else either tentatively or permanently accepted. The processes of comparison, deliberation, discrimination, selection, and judgment are manifested in constructive imagination as truly as in the processes of the will. Constructive imagination selects its material quite as truly as does the builder of houses or bridges. Imperfect material is rejected and doubtful material is subjected to a test or experiment. Constructive imagination is not at the disposal of every image that appears in its field of mental vision. Instead, it exercises its power and prerogative of choice and decision as truly as do reason and will. In fact, the presence of logical thought is manifest in the higher processes of constructive imagination, the two classes of mental activities being so closely interwoven in many cases that it is quite difficult to distinguish between them. Reason scrutinizes closely the images which present themselves as candidates for admission to the inner chambers of the mind. Many appear, but few are accepted. 
Only those are admitted which comparison determines to be fitted for the requirements of the purpose occupying the field of attention. As a writer says, the inventor never thinks harder than when he is comparing his images with each other and rejecting the unfit. Thought also enables him to change an image in conformity with a certain plan. Another says, the predominance of the exact logical processes establishes from the outset the difference between the imaginative dreamers and the imaginative thinkers. Wundt indeed goes still further when he lays down the rule that imagination is in reality a thinking in particular sense ideas. As such, it is the source of all logical or conceptual thought. And a leading teacher says, the man who does not think in images will never be a clear thinker, and those who are compelled to follow him are to be pitied. Thus, you see that just as in your logical thought, you should avail yourself of the power of constructive imagination. So in the processes of constructive imagination, you should always endeavor to coordinate the power of logical thought with those of the strictly imaginative faculties.